So welcome everybody, welcome guests and welcome the audience to uh, another wonderful edition of Earth Day Live, uh, where we're here to talk about igniting climate literacy. Uh, before we start with our wonderful guests and get into the nitty gritty, we want to hear first from uh, Tracy Ritchie, who is the, uh, the head, the chief, the boss of climate education, of education and environment, education and sustainable development at the Earth Day Network. Over to you, Tracy. Wonderful, Nick. Thank you for that promotion. I appreciate that. Uh, good morning, good afternoon, and good evening, everyone. Thank you so much for joining us from around the world. This is a wonderfully exciting webinar that we have today for you. Uh, as Nick mentioned, this is part of Earth Day Live, a series of webinars that earthday.org will be streaming over the next few months, so we hope you tune in for a variety of exciting topics. Today we are talking about igniting climate literacy. Something is vastly important to earthday.org um, and our long history. We have celebrated our 50th anniversary just this past April, and while it was a little bit different than we had envisioned for the 50th anniversary of Earth Day, we are so excited of how many of you have joined us, have pivoted with us, and have really challenged to think about how to connect to your audiences and how to make climate and environmental education a component of our education as we go to virtual distance and online learning. So we're so thrilled to have you here today. This is also not only an Earth Day Live event, but we are part of Climate Week NYC 2020. So we are kicking off Climate Week in the United States here and around the world to feature this as an event. And we hope to have you join us for future Earth Day Live events. EarthDay.org has been working on climate environmental literacy for 50 years with our mission of diversifying the environmental movement. And we are so excited to make sure that this campaign kicks off in a huge way to make sure that students around the world get the climate and environmental education that they deserve, that they need, and that it always has that strong civic education component to make our future leaders active and willing and ready participants in our government systems, in our economic systems, in our social systems. So we're thr so thrilled to have you here today with this distinguished global panel of experts from around the world. And I will throw it over to you, Nick, to introduce our panel. Thank you. Thanks very much. Uh, before I go to our panel, uh, I'd like to just make one announcement because this webinar is not just here to discuss. This webinar is also here to launch what we hope will be a major campaign uh, over the next 12 months involving organizations, groups, and influencers across the world uh, in the run-up to the next big United Nations Climate Conference, which is taking place in the United Kingdom next year in the Scottish city of Glasgow. We want to ignite the enthusiasm of governments across the world to do something that they haven't quite yet managed to do in something like over 20 years, which is to provide for children and youth in schools across the world, the education on climate change that they need to not only understand the scientific realities of what they're facing, but to actually equip them with the skills they need to take part in the kinds of green jobs, as some people call them, that are gonna define the 21st century. And at the same time, to equip them to be citizens that can basically hold their governments and their leaders accountable for their good or their bad decisions that they take over the coming years and decades. And we believe this is important for the economy, we believe it's important for society, and we believe it's important for the future of the planet. So today, Earth Day is coordinating the launch of a global campaign asking people to back basically three things and to ask governments to do this in Glasgow next year. And that is compulsory education for every child and young person going to school in every country around the world. That this is somehow accountable, we've used the word assessed, and that it must be linked with civic engagement because that is the way to actually ignite excitement as well whether it be putting solar panels on the roof of a school uh, or you know, replanting a forest or whatever it is to get uh, children and youth engaged in a kind of systematic way. Right now, we're gonna hear from people around the world who will show that they've been doing amazing things. But it cannot just be that amazing groups are doing amazing things. That has to be a strategy from national governments for this stepped up ambition on climate. 
action and education. And we will actually be going live. In fact, we maybe have gone live right now with our website. Uh, you'll be able to see the campaign. You'll be able to see some of the early signers that range from very big trades unions from around the world to Younger, which is the UN's uh, children and youth uh, group for the UN climate process, to people like Bertrand Picard, who flew the wonderful solar impulse plane around the world. Many people are backing this campaign. So thanks very much. Um, we want you to get involved, be inspired what our guests say, and to also sign up yourselves for this campaign. Thanks very much indeed. And now over to our guests. So I'm going to introduce you first uh, to Rowan Aurora. Rowan is the founder and the executive director of the Community Checkup. And basically, Rowan is an activist on climate change, but also an activist on health. And he basically is working very hard in his native United States, but also around the world in communities where maybe English isn't the first language to actually find these links between climate change, between health. He runs a campaign called Stand Up for Clean Air, for example, clean air being very emblematic of the kinds of health problems people face from burning fossil fuels. What I want to ask you uh, first, uh, Rowan, is to tell us a little bit about what you do and why you're motivated by it. Uh, and then we'll pivot to some of our next guests. So over to you, Rowan. Sure, thank you so much for that kind introduction and having me on as a panelist today. Um, so as you said, my name is Rohan Aurora. I'm a 19-year-old uh, climate activist and writer that specializes in environmental health and climate literacy. Um, the founder and executive director of the Community Checkup, which is a climate health organization focused on restructuring the climate crisis as a public health emergency uh, through educational outreach and youth engagement. I also serve as the climate activist advisor to the American Lung Association and inform their environmental health and climate change campaigns. Uh, in regards to climate literacy in specific, I'm also a writer for The Hill. I just recently published a piece regarding climate education and how important it is. Um, my work really stems from really bridging that gap between climate literacy especially in my uh, leadership in the international nonprofit Climate Cardinals, which is focused on translating climate information into over uh, 100 languages right now. Um, just to bridge that gap, because we know that non-English speakers are more impacted by the impacts of climate change as a whole. Uh, my organization, the Community Checkup, focuses on empowering youth to restructure the narrative of the climate crisis as a medical emergency and our team members and volunteers go into schools and community centers and run their own workshops focused on various environmental health topics, such as air injustice, water quality, climate literacy, and more. Uh, in addition, in the last few months, we've been able to mentor budding activists in the field of environmental health and help them lead their own capstone projects uh, for them to implement in their local communities, because we really believe that change starts locally, sorry, uh, starts locally. Uh, and many of them have been leading Zoom sessions and workshops focused on spreading awareness about environmental health topics in their local communities. And um, that's why my focus has always been on trying to provide people with a full picture about the climate crisis. Thank you so much for having me here today. Great. Thank you very much indeed. Uh, now we want to go over to Frida Berry Eklund. Uh, Frida is a, a climate uh, change communications expert based in Sweden. She's an activist and she's a writer, but in fact, known to actually quite a lot of people around the world for being one of the key people in our kids' climate. So, um, Frida, um, and you're also a founder, I think, of uh, the network there. Just give us a little elevator pitch on, on your work and how this intersects with climate education. Thank you so much. And uh, thanks to the Earth Day Network for inviting me to take part in this really important discussion about climate literacy. So uh, a little bit about me. As Nick mentioned, I'm a Swedish native. I'm a climate communications expert, activist, author, but above all, I'm a mum of two kids and they're age six and eight, uh, both of them in school now. Uh, I'm also the founder of the Climate Parent Network, Our Kids Climate, who are now gathering about 60 groups from 18 countries working together to engage parents and families in climate action. 
Um, I'm also running a Swedish climate network um, and we've been doing that since 2012 where we gather about 26,000 parents pushing for political change in line with the latest science here. Uh, and in December I have a book coming out, it's called uh, Talk to Children About Climate Change and it's a handbook that gives parents, caregivers and teachers some advice on how to talk to children about the most pressing issue of our time, the climate crisis. And here's a spoiler, we can't just talk about it, we also have to show our children that we are acting. Um, I just wanted to give a little bit of context as well while I have the floor about the Swedish context. Um, so public awareness here is very high about climate change, about 85% of the general public is very concerned. And it's also a country where sustainable development has been mainstreamed into curriculum and into subject plans and have been for quite a long time with lots of guidance for teachers. Um, now with that, uh, we know that our children uh, are really worried about climate change. Seven out of 10 children are worried about climate change. We know from national tests that they know a lot about climate change and many of them don't really see a positive future in front of them. In fact, a news reporter that I spoke to recently, she said that the most common question that she gets asked from children regarding climate is, uh, when is the world going to end? So not if, but when. Uh, and I think as a parent, of course, that's uh, heartbreaking. And we know that children and young people have very limited ways of making their voices heard on climate change and ACT. And many feel very isolated in their worry. Um, so in the Swedish context, where there's lots of sustainable development all around, uh, we've asked teachers, what are the top three reasons why they don't bring climate change into the classroom more? And they said the first thing is lack of time. The second one is lack of resources. Uh, and, and clear concrete lesson plans. But the third thing is a fear of scaring children because this is a very scary topic. And we know that very few schools in Sweden and I think around the world, be interesting to hear the other panelists on this, is we don't have strategies to support children that are worried and who are experiencing some of them quite severe climate anxiety. And of course, it's very dependent on which school you're in, how engaged your teachers are and, and the headmaster and so forth. So. It's very much um, up to each school what education children get. So the key issue for us here is how do we up the ante on climate education, but we also support children who are really worried. And how can we engage schools more fully in terms of contributing more to the climate transitions? So that's it for me. Thank you. Super, thanks very much indeed. Well, maybe at some moment, some people might like to reflect on whether this is where the civic engagement helps in some way. To, to actually make young people uh, in this condition active. Uh, before we get to this debate, and by the way, thanks for so many people actually saying that they're watching the show and it's really brilliant. We are gonna take questions later, so stay on, right? And maybe your question will be one of them, which would be fantastic. Um, I'm going now to uh, Nishad Shafi, who's executive director of the Arab Youth Climate Movement in Qatar. Uh, Nishad is an environmental educator, a speaker, and a social change uh, advocate. Um, over five years experience analyzing global environmental and climate politics, uh, participated in the UNFCCC negotiations, and so on and so forth. It's a long CV, great. Um, so Nasheed, over to you. Can you tell us just about your organization and what you're doing? Thank you. Uh, thank you, Nick. Um, uh, thank you all for the invitation. I'm uh, glad to share our perspective from the Middle East and the Gulf country of Qatar. Um, Arab Youth Climate Movement Qatar was formed in 2015 as a youth organization when we realized there was a great vacuum of uh, educating young people uh, about climate change issues. I'm talking about 2015 when uh, climate change was not a buzzword like what we have on every media channels. So it, uh, it was a tough time for us to battle every, everything, you know, even the government were not supporting. Civil society never felt there was a need of such uh, urgency to talk about climate issues. So Arab Youth Climate Movement in acronym AYCMQA started working on climate education, especially at the schools and the universities. And most of our um, members were all from the schools and universities and fresh graduates. The idea of Arab Youth Climate Movement is to rebuild the uh, idea of um, grassroots environmentalism in the state of Qatar and also to bring young people uh, towards climate awareness and advocacy programs. So one of the key programs we started was um, eco-literacy, uh, which was more of uh, training young people to understand the environmental issues they're facing, not only globally from a very local perspective. Uh, one of the recent projects we started was called the Measure Your Carbon Footprint Project, 
it's an activity-based project in the school, which we collaborated with UNESCO here in Qatar. Um, thankfully, the project was approved by the Ministry of Education of Qatar to include that as an activity in every school here in Qatar so that young people understand where the emission comes from on a day-to-day -day basis. It is also a sort of activity to not only get them an idea how much they are contributing from a personal perspective, but also to understand the global scenario, how the whole climate change and carbon emission works. Um, the students would be from a lower, a mid high school to high school students. So the idea is to sort of train them for six months and understand programs and come up with ideas that can mitigate uh, their uh, personal CO2 emissions. So the whole mission of uh, Arab Youth Climate Movement, Qatar was and is to support young people. And as you know, much of the time we in the Middle East doesn't have organization which are credible, which has the capacity to train. We also struggled in the beginning and uh, over the course of time, yes, um, we try to become uh, the better ones. And we are thankfully, or, uh, in 2019, we were glad to be registered as the first nonprofit youth-led association here in the state of Qatar. And we are still the only youth-led association in this Qatar working on environmental issues. Uh, we look forward for partnerships and we have been recently partnering with uh, UNIP office here in Bahrain to support on uh, zero waste uh, Qatar, an idea to reduce uh, waste of uh, plastic pollution in the country. And then the pandemic came in and that um, exaggerated the existing uh, plastic issue to showcase to a new level of uh, urgency required in that aspect also. Uh, we are looking forward for a post-pandemic to work with the school more closely in terms of environmental education. Recently, we also had a, a Zoom meeting with the UNESCO office here in Qatar to work on uh, a climate curriculum here in Qatar with support of Ministry of Education. So a lot of things have been changing and the paradigm of uh, education in terms of climate has been changing in the Middle East, uh, unlikely which most of the people would be feeling because of uh, oil-rich countries in the Middle East. Uh, uh, sometimes people don't even realize they are doing better than some of the countries who don't even believe in climate change. So this is something I wanted to uh, highlight here. Um, probably more to come in the discussion. Thank you. Thanks very much indeed. Now over to uh, Rab Nawaz, who is a uh, senior director of uh, WWF Pakistan and uh, originally hailing from Winchester in the UK. My God, he's a fellow countryman and uh, worked on many things, but he got his bachelor's in wildlife and habitat management, uh, which is, is fantastic in the UK. And now uh, based in Pakistan, joined WF Pakistan in 1999. So tell us a little bit, Rab, where, where does this climate education, environmental education story come into your work? Uh, thanks, Nick. Well, I mean, it's very important. Um, if you look at Pakistan's population, 50% uh, of the 207 million people are under the age of 24. So we realized a long time ago, uh, like Earth Day Network, we've also 50 years this year, uh, half of that lifetime has been spent um, reaching out to, to the youth um, through schools, colleges. Um, it's, it's a fantastic opportunity um, to, 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 to invest in the children. We know that the investment has to be long-term. It has to be uh, not five years or 10 years or 15, but 20, 25 years investment to get some return, to get that impact you want but it's also a challenge i think um uh, if you look at countries uh, like uh, pakistan and, and around the region there's such a diversity of cultures of languages uh, literacy is quite low so the way people perceive climate and climate change is varied across the country even within a province uh, and that means that the way we approach it the way we have to tailor-made messages and the way we we we, we um roll out the programs is very diverse and that can be really challenging. Um, like many countries as well in the region, climate change is quite a re recent dialogue. We're, we're lucky to have, a, a I wouldn't say a green government now, but a government which is very pro-green. But that dialogue has started very uh, recently, maybe the last seven years. Um, I think that um, it's, uh, we need to go a step further than just having this, this uh, igniting this uh, literacy. It, it has to be leadership. I think even WWF across the network has seen and realized that the children are, are really your, your true voice. Um, they're non-political, I wouldn't say they're naive, but they give a very down-to-earth, straightforward perspective. And this year, I think I've learned myself that the best way to ask, uh, to, to get honest feedback about how well we're doing, uh, either as a WWF, as a country, as a government, is ask your kids. They'll give you a very honest, maybe too honest um, response, but I think that 
is very good. And I think we in the network are also trying to uh, develop mechanisms such as having a, a youth board. So the board of WWF in some countries have actually a separate board made of youth. And that really has given uh, offices a way to reach out to, 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 to get to know what youth are thinking. Uh, uh, we've talked about some of the, the impacts that uh, climate change is having on, on the psyche, on, on the, you know, what people are worried about. I think it's very important that we hear the, the youth voice and we incorporate that into our projects, into our programs. So I think we need to take it a step further. I think this is a very good step and we'll be definitely very much behind this initiative. Thank you. Super, super. Thanks very much indeed. And, and you know, just to, just to plant in your brains the fact, I mean, the reason why we think this campaign uh, towards the climate uh, COP, uh, climate conference next year, should be on this compulsory context and, and fully integrated across all, all subjects is, is, in a sense, taking a leap out of the Italians, you know? I mean, the Italians are announced last year compulsory education for all their school children, and uh, we have a very active group in, in, in Italy. And, and I think it's just this week uh, that it started uh, happening in their schools. And interestingly enough, for a subject that often doesn't get much media coverage, that made uh, either the front page or the second page of the New York Times, which shows that actually something is happening in the consciousness, even of uh, the stubborn media, that this is an important topic. Um, right, let's go over to our next speaker, which is Asha, Asha Alexander, who's principal CEO of GEMS Education in uh, Dubai, uh, the United Arab Emirates. It's fantastic, we've got two people on from the Middle East, by the way, which is uh, uh, West Asia, as the UN call it, right? We have to get it right. Um, Asha is uh, a principal at GEMS, the kindergarten starters, Dubai. She's executive leader of the climate change at GEMS Education. Got a Master's of Science in Educational Leadership from Walden University, Minnesota, and many other laurels to add to that story. So, Asha, I'm just going to go straight to you. Tell us what you're doing uh, in, in Dubai. So good morning, good afternoon, and good evening to all our viewers. Thank you for tuning in to listen to this uh, eminent panel. Uh, and I'm learning so much just listening to the panelists themselves. I'm Asha Alexander from uh, Dubai in the UAE, and I've been in education for 33 years. So I was very intrigued to hear Frida worrying about young children, and I handle 5,000 young children in one facility in the heart of Dubai, perhaps the largest school, perhaps in this region, or even in the world for primary children, I should think. And the often, uh, many people come up with the worry that it's emotionally disturbing for children, but there are ways in which we can and must address this for young children. Uh, I am the mother of twin uh, children, a boy and a girl who are 35 years old. I have seen them grow up uh, through one generation, and now all of the children in my school are between the ages of four and 10 years of age. And it is, I think, absolutely necessary that we take action to embed climate literacy. So GEMS is a very large network of schools across the world in 13 countries. And we have 90 schools in uh, places outside of the UAE. In UAE alone, we have 43 schools. And our chairman and uh, founder, Mr. Sani Varki, he is very interested in ensuring that climate literacy is embedded in every GEM school. So armed with that, I came across a course uh, conducted by UNCC Learn and Educate Global in the UK, which was certifying teachers in climate literacy. Because before introducing climate literacy in lessons, we wanted to upskill our teachers. So we became the first school in the world to have UN certified climate change teachers in all of our 162 classrooms. 327 staff members have qualified, 67 parent uh, governors on our body have also undergone that course. So we are in a much better position to embed climate literacy in our schools. And I think that is very, very essential not just within GEMS education, but my ambition is that we will have a climate change teacher in every classroom across the world. And when I went to COP25 last year to raise the same issue, I found there were very few educators there. There were politicians, 
they were debating what should be done, but we are actually losing plenty of time. And I think uh, instead of waiting for a top-down approach, waiting for government to change their policies, educators can do much in actually moving it from the grassroots upwards as well. Super, thank you very much indeed, that's great. Yeah, I mean, one of the things that inspired us a little bit in this uh, campaign that we've launched today, and I hope uh, as many of you out there that are watching can sign up for it, it's online now, uh, with an open letter to Patricia Espinoza, the head of the UN Framework Convention on Climate Change and to all governments, was a paper in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences earlier this year, which talked about, I think, five or six societal changes that could stabilize the climate. And there was carbon markets and renewable energy, but there was climate education from a, a range of academics from, from, from across the world saying this was absolutely critical. And I think that we all intuitively know this, but I'm not sure the governments, when they go and negotiate at climate conferences, they get attracted by the shiny things like renewable energy and forget the soft power of education. And I think that's what we're trying to, to change in the dynamics here. Super. Now, last but not least, we have a very special guest because it was supposed to be another special guest, but the other special guest could make it. So this makes Jessica uh, Huertas from Peru uh, even more special. Thank you for coming in at the last moment, Jessica. Uh, Jessica is, uh, I think I'm right, Jessica, you're in the Peruvian government. You'll, you'll clarify that if I'm wrong. Uh, you're a social psychologist, 20 years of work in public policy and programs and social projects, um, cross-cutting approaches on climate change, the general directorate of climate change and desertification, I assume, in the Peruvian government. So, Jessica, tell us about climate education uh, and how you guys handle that in Peru. Hello, how are you? Good day with everyone. Uh, thank you very much uh, to the organization for invitation and thank you to everyone who is joining us. I work with Ministry of Environment in Peru as coordinator of cross-cutting approach and climate change in general direction of climate change and desertification. Uh, I'm a social psychologist. Um, I have a, an experience with uh, vulnerable people and populations and we work in mainstream approach based on human rights intercultural intergenerational and gender in a different stage of the implementation of climate change programs projects and policies for us it's very important that climate education efforts consider these approaches and also that they target not only young people but also promote change in adult people. Thank you. Thank you very much, Jessica. That was very short and very prompt. Thank you very much indeed. So we're going to do a little bit of a discussion here. If there are questions coming through somewhere, I have my mobile phone that's going to tell me exactly what questions might be turning up, but I can also see things on the chat as well. Um, so let's look at this issue. I mean, wh why, why are we not where we need to be? You, you people out there on this show, you represent people really working hard to bring climate education to young people. And as you rightly say, Jessica, it can't just stop there, but we think it begins in school. Uh, and we hope that schools can hand on a climate literate generation to further education or to the world of work. And, and I think that's the way we see it. Um, but why is this a gap? I mean, I, I saw that they, the UK Climate Assembly, which was uh, requested by various parliamentary committees. Uh, this is the UK, a, a rich, developed country, which has a long tradition of education. And what did the public say in the UK that they felt would change the dynamics of climate action? They said information and climate education. So even in a country like the United Kingdom, which prides itself on this kind of thing, the host of the next UN Climate Conference, knows they don't have it in their schools in that kind of integrated cross-cutting way that we know is absolutely critical. So Rowan, let me ask you for a, a, a view on this. I mean, where do you think, why are we missing climate education? Why is climate education, certainly in the United States, but in some of the other countries you're, 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 you're producing materials before, where do you think the gap is here, Rowan? Why, why do you think we, we're not on track? 
Sure, yeah. I think one of the biggest issues um, from my personal experience and from a cultural view, especially within the United States and um, that transcends further than that, is that climate change is still considered this political issue when in reality, it's a scientific issue, right? And one of the things that I've realized going through the school system within the United States, just to provide some context, I recently graduated from the highest ranked high school in the U.S., which has been known to produce road scholars, world leaders, and everything under those lines. And although I'm really grateful for my education, there's something drastic missing in education as a whole uh, regarding climate literacy. Um, I felt that my experience was a bit different because comprehensive early education about environmental health and the applications of climate science wasn't present. You can't teach climate science as something abstract because then it's considered as something abstract. Um, personally, I during my senior year of high school at Thomas Jefferson High School for Science and Tech uh, down in Alexandria, Virginia, what I learned about was um, climate science and stuff like that. But the way that the climate discussion was portrayed was more of just a scientific one. It has no human impact. It is just a completely abstract topic. And although it's really important to lead with science, it's also important to include other aspects of science, like health impacts of the climate crisis. Nine out of 10 people in the world breathe, uh, breathe unhealthy air, yet I only know that because of my background. That's not what's being taught to our students in schools across uh, not only the country, but across the world. Um, and one of the things that I realized was climate apathy is a huge issue because of the way that we teach climate education today. A lot of what my organization does is it goes into schools and community centers to educate people about climate crisis and specifically how it's a public health emergency. But this type of action needs to be taken on a institutional level rather than separate organizations um, trying to make these types of strides because that's the only way that we're going to actually change the mainstream narrative, right? We spend so much time learning about social justice movements and learn about the Pythagorean theorem about like rhetorical devices and stuff like that in high school. Why don't we talk about comprehensive intersectional climate education that isn't just, oh, there's something called the ozone. We need more than that. That's not, that's the reality is that we need to speak to the real life impacts of climate change as a whole. And that was kind of why I even got into the movement because my family doesn't have a background in climate. Uh, like my family didn't even know what climate change was before I got into the movement, to be very honest. And that's the reality for the bulk of families across the world, right? People are trying to put food on the table and you're gonna be teaching them about this abstract science. You need to, or um, institutions need to showcase why not only youth should care, but why should we as a society care about this issue? And why does it impact people across the world? So I think one of the biggest things and one of the biggest assets that we can provide students is providing them intersectional and comprehensive climate education because the reality is the youth are the next generation. We are the leaders of um, any climate reform that... Um, comes about, right? We're going to be living in that generation that'll be directly impacted by climate change. Yeah. Yet, um, we don't see enough focus on youth and we also don't see enough education, especially in a school with a lot of resources that the class wasn't taken seriously. So I can't even imagine in across the world in places with less resources and with places with, um, that are already struggling, how are we trying to equip the next generation of climate warriors. Yeah, exactly. Good, good points. Yeah, exactly. So um, I'm probably going to turn to Frida there, but I mean, I think this is a very good point. I mean, some people said to us, oh, well, you want to educate children on climate change now, isn't it too late? Well, I've always understood that it's never too late, but it's a good point that in 1992, when the Climate Change Treaty was actually established, they actually included the issue of climate education in 1992. But what have we done over the last 20 odd years? Yeah, I mean, again, lots of good initiatives happening, but where is the power of central governments to actually ensure that, you know, they do what they said they were going to do in 1992? That's why we need to change this next year in Glasgow. Frida, um, 
let me ask you, um, just getting on this issue again, a little bit of the anxiety uh, aspects. I mean, I don't know if that's a Swedish thing or whether that's, you know, a developed country thing. It strikes one in some developing countries, some people don't even, you know, are not even aware of what climate change is yet to even get worried about it. Although I did live in Africa and you do have a lot of people living in Africa that know the weather's changed and they're very worried about it because they, they can't plant their crops on time. So how do you turn the anxiety into something positive? Is it civic engagement? I think you answered that question by your well, question. Elaborated <laughs> for me, for God's sake. <laughs> um, well, I, I, I totally agree. I mean, the, the situation, of course, is very different depending on where you're coming from. I mean, in countries where you are experiencing very uh, extreme impacts, uh, of course, that's, that's what people are worried about. In a country like Sweden, where we haven't really seen that that many effects yet it's a very distant issue for people because we have we haven't realized that it will affect everyone but it doesn't affect everyone equally of course and at the moment it's impacting very vulnerable communities not at least children in many countries of course um, but if we look at anxiety um, there are uh, a few things that i like to highlight and um, like you were saying the best cure for anxiety about this issue because it is also you know, um, an issue of children experiencing a lot of emotional stress uh, about this issue. The more you learn, of course, the more stress can be um, created when you don't see that enough is being done. I mean, Greta Thunberg is a good example of that. A child kind of opening her eyes to what's happening, looking around and seeing that adults are not doing anything about this issue or they're not doing enough. And that is, of course, creating anxiety because, of course, as a child as well, you have a lot less opportunities to, um, to engage in democratic uh, processes, for instance. So a lot of children are feeling really kind of um, hamstrung by, by this. Uh, there are a few things that, that we can do. And, and I think the first thing is, of course, like tell the truth about the issue, uh, but we need to make it age appropriate. And I think that that's really important. Um, and that means that using words and concepts that are appropriate for different, different ages, um, another thing I want to highlight is that giving false assurances to children that things are going to be okay is doing them a big disservice because we don't know what's going to happen. And we know that the what world what children are going to live in and grow up in is to do with what we, the, the adult generation, is doing in the next few years. Um, and the third thing is that, you know, we need to let children know that we are worried too but we are ready to act and it's the responsibility of adults to solve this problem because it's our, it's us that created it in the first place. And the yeah. fourth thing I think is really about like acknowledging feelings. So, and that goes for both adults and children, like acknowledging how we feel about this issue. Is it sadness? Is it upset? Is it frustration? Is it anger? All of these things are like healthy reactions to what's happening in the world. But we as adults, we can help then children turn those emotions into action by helping identify ways to act and connect them and empower them to take action. And then lastly, um, talking about what we all can do to contribute to the solution. And I think action is definitely a good cure for any anxiety. Um, and focusing on collective action uh, is important. I mean, we're in a situation where we need to connect children to making their voices heard, and or joining an organization, advocating for local change in local communities, starting a climate group, you know, tree planting projects, anything that, you know, connects children with action, I think is a big, um, big help in terms of alleviating anxiety. Yeah. Good, Frida. Thanks very much indeed. Um, I'm going to go to um, Sheet here because um, it's interesting. There are some positive things, just flipping off a little bit of what Frida said. I mean, there are some very positive things happening in the world. I mean, renewable energy is doubly three or four years now around the world, which is absolutely amazing. I mean, it has a exponential growth, whether you're in developing countries or developed countries, it's amazing. But you have a special challenge, which you underlined a little bit, you know, from what you said earlier. You're in a, what have been traditionally a major fossil fuel producing country and whether wherever you look radar somewhere behind all this 
is the footprint of fossil fuels. Once a very wonderful product, which you know the consequences of, but now it's 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 got a bit of headache attached to it called climate change. Um, is, it seems to be drifting past leg, uh, which is a positive thing. Global will be with us for a long time, but maybe not needed in the same quantities that we've had it in the past if we're going to deal with climate. Maybe you don't know how you deal with it with young people. And what about the COP in Glasgow, Nasheed? I mean, you've been involved in these, these negotiations. Do we need another 10 years of a work programme, which is one of the things proposed on climate change? Or do we really need some stepped up action, maybe compulsory education in every school and, and some assessment and civics and some support for developing countries, proper support to do this? Uh, great, Nick. I mean, definitely you touched on some uh, great points regarding uh, being a, a very fossil fuel industry based country, which is on uh, most of the economy is based on the fossil fuel economy. Um, there's a great discussion towards the transition towards renewables and uh, even a country which is completely um, onto a fossil fuel that didn't exactly have a people's mindset in regards to climate change so when we started the organization back in 2015 the idea was people felt this was a very political and government uh, to solve issue and public didn't have an idea of what's going on um, also to give the backdrop nick you've been with UNFCCC. qatar hosted the cop uh, 18 in 2012 when we started the, the organization i didn't find one young people who have heard about COP back in that days. So you understand the whole concept was, it's a government thing and government has to deal with it. That has something to do with the fossil fuel industries, what I would say, but the last five years have been very transformative how public engagement started off. And um, also to understand the, the, the dynamics of fossil fuel industry that um, our country only takes 10% of what goes to 90% to the world market. So everybody's equally responsible for that. So that, that's insight is also get, coming up and also recently in terms of Qatar moving out of OPEC, uh, moving to another fossil fuel, which is gas, which is thought to be a transition before into renewables. So sort of public discourses has been always feeling that this is not a, a, a individual action would make a difference, but collective actions from a public would definitely make government to act. And that is what we have seen over the past many years, especially with our NGO, we try to build out of understanding that, uh, uh, I mean, that's one of the reasons why you don't find environmental advocates from the Middle East, because they've been always kept aside telling that your country is a part of the global fossil fuel industry, which is wrong, because for me, the Middle East stays well beyond the radar I mean, compared to United States, India, Brazil, uh, they are on the top of the radar, but you find most of the climate activists coming from those very developed countries. Surprisingly, our young people were a bit, I would say, uh, uh, kept behind the bar uh, for many years thinking that, okay, they are not part of the bigger conversation because the country is pro-fossil pro fuel. It is, uh, it is the truth, but that shouldn't stop the young people from being an advocate because they would definitely, like a country like Qatar or the Middle East and the Gulf countries, where governments are like quasi-government. So you may not know one of the citizens would be a, a, a minister or a diplomat who would make a decisions in the coming future. And that's exactly what AYCM is working on. We have a great number of young uh, Arab students who, are, who might or may not be into decision-making roles in a very, very young age. That would really transform how they want to see their com country in the coming years. And of course, there's a huge discussion how the, uh, the tr transition has to be happen. And of course, when your country's uh, economy is based on oil and gas, it takes some time to do that was being a part of an extra two countries on the UNFCCC, they also have the leverage of making sure development goes in hand in hand with environment. So that had something kept the young people far away from sort of advocating. So these the are good changes. Sashid, I'll have to hurry you a little bit on this answer. Sorry that. So so, now, that's a good answer. But then just pivot into just briefly, what about COP in Glasgow, right? So, well, I mean, I've been, I've been, I've been, I've been with COP for the last five years and I, I, I've been with the COP for the last five years and uh, uh, I, I, I wish, um, um, I really wish the COP26 uh, in Glasgow would really come up with something that we don't have to. Because for me personally being there, I felt it's like a sort of a, a annual summit everybody want to attend. You, know, you see all this government. Yeah, uh, it's great fun. You public. see all your friends, but are they stepping <laughs> up on climate education? I, I don't think so. But in the last COP, what I felt, and also I heard Italy is working hard in terms of environmental education as a, a priority for Italy. Uh, that is what we even recently discussed with the Italian embassy here to work on a project. So that's something very promising in terms of climate literacy. 
mm-hmm. but in terms of negotiation, I don't foresee um, a COP would go for another five years for me. I mean, that's literally how I feel because uh, the negotiation is keep going on and the least uh, countries which have been uh, contributing to climate change are worsely impacted and they are kept aside in the main conversation at the COP summits. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Good, thanks Ashish. So uh, hold those thoughts. Um, now let's quickly go to Rab uh, in, uh, in Pakistan again, Rab. Um, there was a question here, what are the connections between climate literacy and conservation goals such as saving the pangolin populations in Pakistan? You may have to explain to some people what pangolins are, but, um, but I mean, the question is, I suppose, if we're talking about climate, climate literacy, it's something like saving those populations of endangered species, a wonderful civic engagement project for, for young people to somehow, you know, make these connections. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, the, uh, the, the, the strong connection. I mean, the, to the pangolin, for those who don't know, it's basically an, ant, an anteater. It's one of the most um, heavily trafficked animal in the world in terms of illegal wildlife trade. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's becoming uh, extinct in, in many countries uh, in Asia and Africa. Um, so it's, uh, the, the importance is, is in the fact that um, you, it's very hard to talk about con- conservation to a lot of communities which don't have stable livelihoods. If you look at the COVID-19 situation, uh, are in, in, real, in real trouble. So it's a, it's a dialogue and, and, and uh, I wouldn't say trade-off, but it's, it's a dialogue and a, uh, an argument you, you have with the, the communities, uh, including the use of um, what they need to do and why it's so important. And you can imagine trying to teach, teach ecology of a small animal in a huge ecosystem to a bunch of kids. So the, uh, the, the tools that we use and the approach we, we have to take um, takes a lot of time. So as I said in the beginning, um, when we look at conservation projects, they have to be long-term. It's not because species take a while to, to recover. They don't. Mother, mother Nature uh, will actually come back very quickly. But the change in attitude you have to, to make within communities, within the, the, the governments and in the policymakers takes a long time. So a lot of our work is actually more changing attitudes and actual conservation on the ground. So in that respect, this literacy, the, the, the climate dialogue and environmental dialogue is perhaps more important than the actual conservation work that we do with the animals on the ground. Good point. Good, then we can expect WWF to sign up to our campaign, which would be absolutely brilliant. (laughs) So let's, uh, we're running a bit short of time, I have to say, we have 13 minutes left. We do have some questions. I wanted to say to all those wonderful people who are sending things on the chat, thank you so much. There's Roger Ryder and there's Stephanie Weisberg and uh, who else? Jose Angel, Ortega and lots and lots of people. Uh, telling us all about their projects as well, which is brilliant. Sorry we can't respond, but all our guests are seeing that. Over to Asha now uh, in in Dubai. Asha, so apart from uh, uh, your institution, um, tell us how you measure the success of what you're doing. I think lots of people want to know how you measure success. So uh, without much ado, I'll try and share my screen uh, so you can have an idea of how Uh, students can be assessed and what they do in schools. So here is an opportunity for children who are uh, designing a sensor system in a forest fire. These are very young children and the child feels that by putting that sensor on the tree, uh, somehow someone will be alerted. They study about climate change and existence of levels of organisms. Uh, Of course, they are aware of World Ozone Day, and this is happening during the pandemic. All what you see is on Padlet or Mentimeter, where students are giving immediate responses. There's a little engineer who's designed a robot to save the world, and he's given you the process, the light source, the signal receiver, exactly what his robot is going to do. And uh, we have thinking routines where uh, children are debating why pollination will affect you and me and the world around. Uh, And in this part of the world, since water is very, very important, students focus on saving water and the effect of climate change on water resources. Mm -hmm. Uh, So 
children talk and plan and do projects on cloud seeding and aquaponics using the micro bits. Uh, so there's a lot of technology involved and uh, many of you may not know what is pink farming or vertical farming, but that is something that is done extensively. I won't play this video. Uh, it's a book created by a child explaining pink farming or vertical farming. Uh, an action project was undertaken across the school to create awareness for conservation of water and electricity and to end the global water crisis and to share ways to conserve water and electricity. So after several months, almost a year, students had reduced the consumption of water by 148,720 gallons by actually researching where they were wasting water, turning off taps, adapting nozzles uh, in the pipes to make sure that the water flow is decreased. Eventually, there was a call to action. They did something called Walk for Water. They engaged schools in Missouri in India and Jeddah in uh, Saudi Arabia. And the, the plan was to carry a bucket of water for a certain distance without spilling a drop. In doing so, the children understood how much uh, it's important to conserve water, how some children have to walk for miles to get just a bucket of water, and how important it is to raise this public awareness. To have all children uh, do the same activity at the same time across the world was really very significant for the children. They've taken ownership and they make sure that uh, this is embedded. So you can assess, you're not assessing in terms of an examination, but in the product that you get in children's changed behaviors, their belief and their ownership that they can change the world, we're seeing how climate literacy is really impacting children. We've had wonderful books written by Alan J. Hesse from UK, who talks about the journey of a polar bear in different continents. And while Frida was saying, it should be done in fun ways, using language which is uh, you know, accessible to these young children. So th their anxieties are laid. And I agree with her 100% that when you create opportunities and adults model the same behaviors around, it makes children feel that this is not the end of the world. There is a solution and they are now part of it. Excellent. Thanks very much, Asha. And finally, to Laura in Peru. Thanks, Laura. Um, is there a way of possibly discussing with us um, the best way that citizens, students, young people can engage with, with their governments on advancing climate education in schools? Is there some way that, you know, does the government, you think, should, be, should they be welcoming? Should governments be welcoming? more dialogue with, 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 with students about how to raise the level of, 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 of climate and environmental literacy. If not, if there's another point you want to make, that's fine too. <laughs> that's for Jessica today. Jessica, yeah. Sorry, not Laura, Jessica. Sorry, Jessica. No I'm, worry, just, no I'm an old man, I get confused now with my notes, you know. No worry, it's okay. Uh, uh, in Peru, uh, we want to make the uh, young people uh, work with us in uh, the climate change policy. So we are promoting the organization of representation of civil society in the institutional space provided in the framework law of, cl of climate change, such as a National Commission of Climate Change. Uh, in their in their space, there are spots for young people, for teenagers, for Afro-descendant groups. It's very important to all boys are uh, here in in national commission and indigenous people and women too, and unions too. It's yeah. important they they not only work in their space like uh, with uh, their peers. It's important to interchange with other views. So we are working with them and we want to stay not only in National Commission uh, of, on Climate Change and also stay in uh, regional commissions and local commissions because in their space uh, they work uh, policies in climate change. Uh, also we have uh, like, um, like a mechanism uh, called Dialoguemos. It's, we, let's talk, if we have to, to translate. 
And in, in this space, we have to, to um, promote dialogue, commitment, and action on our national determinant contributions. Uh, we want to address NDC adaptation and mitigation measures and involve all actors and sectors. And we work with multi-actor and multi-level space bearing a proper representation. No? Uh, we want to increase our ambition and for that we have to increase the commitment. And in in that uh, in that idea, uh, our framework law of climate change includes the subject on, of education not only in schools but also in institutes and university as well as community educational space. The bylaw explains that we should also include the traditional knowledge of the indigenous people in education. This is very important for us. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Great. Jessica, thank you very much. We're coming to the end of the show and uh, uh, there's a very nice question here that maybe somebody might want to take, uh, 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 or maybe two people at maximum, from Steve Levitt at the University of York who says, I would love to see economic literacy taught as part of the environmental curriculum which is uh, perhaps another way of saying that there is a big strong link obviously between the economy and uh, and the environment and climate change um perhaps that could be part of an integrated uh teaching that goes on uh but maybe if anybody wants to take that do you think that's important uh in terms of dealing with climate change that that young people also are aware of the economic side of the story anybody want to take that Nishid. Well, it's, it's funny sometimes when we talk to our young people regarding climate change action here in the Gulf countries, they say, hey, once you move away from oil and gas, we're going to be poor. So it's absolutely necessary to understand the economics that going renewables will earn more job and better pay in the coming days than what it used to be now. And yeah. that can be seen like uh, recently, a lot of students in Qatar, uh, rather than going into uh, academics, into petroleum or chemical engineering because that ends up your job in the oil industry. I've now moved to sustainability studies and recently Qatar introduced the sustainability PhD studies at Hamad bin Khalifa University here where a lot of young people have shown interest in joining. So I see there's a transformation and definitely economics has to do with the climate action because getting them to know the myths about going away from fossil fuel is not losing money but also you gain both health and money at the same time. Yeah. Good point. I mean, I think a lot of people don't understand the economics and that there actually are, if you do the broader economics, I mean, if you actually looked at the number of people that get sick, the number of people that die in mining accidents, if you look at the amount of water that's required for coal-fired power stations, if you look at the whole economy of coal-fired generation in a broader sense of societal impacts, there would be very few coal-fired power stations that would actually be profitable. And most of them, and if you tell people that actually fossil fuels around the world are subsidized more than renewable energy, some people say, no, that can't possibly be true. So, I, I, yeah, the economics is a very interesting way. Whether a six-year-old child uh, would, would necessarily get that, but they might well do. And there might be a way of teaching it that way because there is this absurdity about the economics for sure. Um, by the way, lots of you have had lots of praise, by the way. I've got lots of messages praising all of you. They're not really questions. They're just saying, good, good job, well done. Um, we've got about two minutes to go, so I'm really going to kind of leave it there. Um, I want to thank everybody that's been on the, uh, the programme, on the webinar, here on Earth Day Live. Um, I want to uh, thank you for all the work that you're doing, because it's absolutely vital. And I hope with our campaign that we will ignite uh, uh, a decision next year in, in, in Glasgow that is not business as usual with climate education, that can be seen as a step up in ambition at the level of central governments. And we know that then it go, pick, trickles down through regional governments and all kinds of different systems to the people that matter, which is the youth and the children. But we do think there needs to be a political signal from, from Glasgow that it can't be business as usual. We can't keep turning out generation after generation of, of young people. Uh, I'm not talking about your schools and institutions, you're turning out great ones that are fully aware of what's going on. 
But for the vast majority of children, it's still a very rare thing to receive this. And given we have nine years, according to the science, to actually get on track, we can't, can't, can't allow this to continue. So thank you very much for your time. Join our campaign, those that are watching, and have a really super duper day. Thank you very yes. much. Thank you so much, Nick, for moderating. Thank you so much for these panelists, your thoughts and your, your expertise and the work that you do. Most importantly, we're eternally grateful. Thank you everyone for joining. This was a huge turnout. We know that there are so many unanswered questions. So please contact us at education at earthday.org for more questions to reach out to our panelists. The recording will be available. There was lots of questions about that. So stay tuned to earthday.org's Facebook and Twitter for the recording. And thank you so much. Have a safe and wonderful day, everyone. Take care. Thank you. Bye-bye.